This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations presented by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. In solidarity with Black Lives Matter and Amplify Melanated Voices, this week we are highlighting four conversations from our archives that feature black thinkers, activists, and writers. Starting Thursday, June 4th through Sunday, June 7th, we are re-releasing conversations with Ijeoma Oluo, Damon Young, Joy DeGruy, and Angela Davis. We hope that listening to these episodes provides resources and connection in these transformative times. You can find all four episodes and more on the recommended page at ciispod.com or by subscribing to this podcast. Thank you for listening, and we wish you well. Hi. <laughs> we warmed up. We are warmed up. We've been telling stories back in the green room because I was trying to keep warm. I just want to say publicly how much I appreciate you from the bottom of my heart. Back at you. Yes. So um, there's a lot of folks here that know you. If you have uh, been to a lecture of Joy DeGruy, if you've been to a workshop, clap for us so you can. If this is the first time that you've had the pleasure of sitting in her presence, could you clap for us, please? (laughs) So I'm a researcher. That was my assessment. (laughs) of how I'm going to go with the evening. Okay. So post-traumatic slave syndrome. Tell us about where did you get the energy and the, the, the wherewithal to, to come up with the theory such as uh, post-traumatic slave syndrome? Because um, a lot of folks, this is their first time. So. Sure, I, I realized that when the other clapping happened. Um, <laughs> And anyone in the audience that's familiar with my work know how difficult this is (laughs) to actually explain it. Um, Actually, it started with lived experience. Uh, Before I went to school, before I did the research for the book, way before all of that, it started growing up in this skin. And what I mean by that is, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles, South Central, graduated from Crenshaw High School. (laughs) Woo-woo! and, you know, my family's from the South. They did that migration that, that we did. And if you aren't familiar with that, uh, you, you should really look at Isabel Wilkerson's book, um, The Warmth of Other Sons. She does a phenomenal job of, of, of sharing that journey of black families, the most under, understated migration in American history. Six million people without a leader. Anyway, my parents migrated from Louisiana My father, uh, who um, went to the sixth grade, my mother uh, had actually had a a chance to go to college. She had a scholarship, but she didn't go. She raised a family. And my father called himself an Asiatic black man from as long as I can remember, before black was beautiful and we was colored folks. My father said we were black, and he was real clear about that. And he also knew that he didn't want to raise us in the South because he wasn't gonna raise us to bow down. So one of the things I started to notice uh, as a young child 
I was always the kid, and and they've always been the person that you know when there was a little a little kid in my in my classroom that didn't have a lunch, I was the one who shared my lunch. Oh, I don't I don't want my I don't need this sandwich. I'm not even hungry. That's who I was. I was the one who stood up for the kid that was uh, picked on or the kid that didn't have a friend. That's who I've always been from kindergarten. I've always been that person, but there was something I started to notice about my people. And, and be clear, I love my people. I love my people. And I started to see something happening with us that even as a child didn't make sense to me. I couldn't reconcile it. And the, and the thing that I saw was this kind of antagonism that was happening between us, where if someone black was mad at someone else that was black, they would insult them. And when they insulted them, they would call them black first. You black, fill in the blank. You black. And, and as a child, I, I, was, I struggled with that. I didn't understand. I said, well, you are black. But you see, tacitly what we've agreed to is that if I call you black, that should injure you even more. It's to add emphasis to the insult. So when I call you black, I'm expecting that to hurt you. And that never made sense to me. You don't hear white people go, you white. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's not what happens. So I think it started there very young with trying to understand why we hurt each other with each other, what that was about. And then later on, um, and again, this is long before, I have four degrees, three of them are advanced degrees. I'm not saying that to brag at all. I'm saying that to suggest that, you know, this was something that was confusing for me, and I was clearly confused. But part of what I, I, I learned is what was in lived experience with other black people. You know, like statements that I would hear people say, oh, she was a pretty girl, even though she was dark. You know, and, oh, that was a good-looking boy. You know, he was light-skinned and had good hair, right? And these were things that became, and again, when I say that, that is not to assault people because you, 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 there's brokenness there, but they don't understand that it's brokenness. So you can't fix what you don't understand. You can't fix it. And, and nobody ever kind of explained why, why are we doing that? And instead, deep down, it, it, it kind of it chopped away at our sense of, of self. All those years. Now, you got to remember something about, you know, slavery. <laughs> it's, it's so amazing to me. We're talking about over 300 years. That's longer than baseball. That's, that's longer than, I mean, you know, people, we say those words, but we don't understand what that means. 300 years of being treated like you were subhuman being told constantly that you're not okay, you're not whole. 300 years, what does that do to a people? And by the way, we could never talk about it. At what point do you remember in American history when we were able to actually talk about it? Somehow slavery ended and everything was fine. Somehow the playing field was leveled or something. At what point did we heal? So let me give you some math. Now, <laughs> tomorrow and the next day, we're going to spend some time unpacking this. Um, but 300, 339 years at the very least of being sold, beaten, 
bred, mutilated, basically experimented on, raped, sold. Lynched. Lynched. So at what point, 339 years of trauma, no help. Now remember when someone tells this man who jumped the broom with his wife, as much of a wife as she could be, and they come in in the middle of the night and say to him, I want her because I got some male visitors. And I'm going to pass her around to them. Was there anybody? Was, did Dr. Phil show up for them? No. So for 339 years of trauma, there was no help. Okay, then you got freed. Okay, great. Now we're free. Any help then? Did you find it anywhere in the research books about, you know, we know you've been traumatized. We're going to get you some group therapy. We're going to do some couples counseling. We're going to deal with the children that were, you know, sold off. Any, any therapy. Okay, 339 years of trauma, no help. Freed, no help. Did the trauma continue? Now, we're talking about after, so in other words, after slavery ended, where did slavery go? Well, the first thing that happened is it didn't go. It's called peonage, the unlawful selling of people back into slavery, hence 12 years a slave. He wasn't the only one. So now you're, you're sold back into slavery, and then they figure out we can't do that. Then they had something called black codes, which means that you might be free, but you better not come to the Bay Area. You better not go to Oregon, but can't you go north? Well, no, we created exclusionary laws to make sure you couldn't go. But aren't you free now? Okay, so 339 years of trauma, no help, freed more trauma. Because you got to remember all the lynchings occurred after slavery, not during. And by the way, they still occur. But here's what happens is we buy into a myth that somehow the playing field got leveled. And when did ever we have a chance as black people to have this conversation? To talk about why you might be broken and what that might look like. But instead you break our legs and then complain that we limp. And when I say you, I'm talking about America. And I'm talking about those who suffered in the, in the Caribbean. And I'm talking about all of those who suffer the vestiges of such a horrific institution as chattel slavery. Now, I emphasize chattel because what happens to people around this, I know I'm answering it no, a long this, time. This, this is what it takes. This is what it takes. You know, when people hear slavery, they go, you know, and some people are in here thinking, gosh, someone distract her so I can run. Um, you know, they're thinking, slavery? Really? Are you... Come on now, slavery, what, what are you people, what excuses are you trying to find? You know, who are you trying to blame now? See, these are all, I, I'm dealing with that because I know it's going on in the psyche that people start kind of feeling that. But what people don't understand is that American chattel slavery differed from every form of slavery that preceded it because slavery is not a new institution. That's the other thing that people say, it's not new. Almost every institution that I know of, every country has had some form of indentured servitude or slavery. But American chattel slavery didn't look like the rest. It differed 
in the manner in which a person became enslaved. It differed in the length of servitude. It differed in the treatment of those who were enslaved. And it differed in how they were perceived as human beings. Before the European slave trade began, most people became enslaved as a result of war. Two societies went to war. Winners enslaved the losers. However, Europeans systematically turned the capturing, shipping, selling, and breeding of other human beings into a business that would develop into the backbone of an entire economy. That's different. So when we take a look at slavery, we talk about this injury, post-traumatic slave syndrome, I'm going to give you some up-close and personal real looks at it so that you can understand that it's not, um, if, if you want to understand the etiology of some of the behavior that we see, we have to understand how far back we got to go. And then I'll talk about epigenetics so we can understand how it actually gets locked in the DNA. But before I go there, because we are phenomenal people, I, I just told you all that we, we didn't get no help, haven't been able to talk about it. We are indeed a miracle mm. of a people. Amen. We're a miracle of a people. So if you want to know what it looks like, how did I begin to look at it and diagnose it? Recently, I actually wrote a chapter for a, a, a book that's going to be coming out I'm pretty excited about, where I actually traced some of the behaviors that we see in contemporary society, I actually found a black family and traced the etiology all the way back to slavery through sharecropping. They were a sharecropping family. But I'm going to give you some ideas of what it looks like um, 2018. So 2018, you know, this is a pretty diverse group of people. Actually, uh, this group of people is more realistic in terms of, you know, what we really look like. You know, the majority of the world is a world of color. 7.4 billion people, the majority of those people are people of color. And somehow we've managed to convince everybody in this country that the world is white. And that's odd because that doesn't jive with the numbers. So the fact that, you know, when we, when we look at this and we look at the issue, we have to look at how it shows up in us today. So let's just say, and I give this example and you've probably seen it. By the way, everything you've seen on YouTube, I didn't put any of that up. Not a single one of them. Not one of those. So I have no idea what you've seen, and it frightens me. Hmm. People say, I saw you on YouTube. I'm going, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I don't know what to say. Because I don't, I don't know what they did. And the biggest problem I have with it is the fact that I don't know who's putting it up. And they may be crazy as hell. Pardon hmm. me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, I, and I don't necessarily want to be aligned. So I'm giving you that disclaimer now. I don't know what you saw and who put it up. And I'm always, they, the, the YouTube people know me. They go, oh, yeah, Joy, we'll take it down. Yeah, I'm sorry, sorry about it. So 2018, you have a black mother and you have a white mother. Or a black father and a white father, not gender specific. Black mother, white mother mm, live right here in, in San Francisco. They both have children. Matter of fact, they have sons, and the sons go to school together. The sons are good friends. They play with each other. They spend the night over each other's homes. Really great, close, close relationship. They find themselves at a meeting like this. Black mother seated next to the white mother. On either side of them is their sons. Black mother leans over to the white mother and says to the white mother, I've noticed your son is doing well. White mother's response, thank you for noticing. 
In fact, he's quite the man. Did I mention that he's in the TAG program? That would mean the talented and gifted. In addition to that, he won the science fair just last week. The boy's brilliant. And his uncle's an astronaut, right? So she's very proud. I'm not mad at her. She leans back, feeling kind of warm and fuzzy about everything. And then all of a sudden, she thinks about it, and she realizes that the black mother's son is actually excelling her son. So she leans back up, and she says to the black mother, wait a minute, you're talking about my son. Your son is the one that's really coming along. Black mother's response, girl, get out of here. You should have seen that boy yesterday. Woo, he works my nerves. That boy's a mess. Woo, stop. Girl, get out of here. How many of you have seen the behavior? Black people in the audience kind of laughed. And the reason why the black people in the audience laughed is because there's a secret. Now, I'm a clinician. It's always the secrets that make us sick. Always the secrets. Even when I was doing therapy, it was that nasty secret. And actually, his new research shows that they actually, secrets actually do make you physically sick. So what we understand and what the secret is, is that even though the black parent, mother, father, whoever it is, is going, get out of here. Oh, that boy is, a, oh, he's a knucklehead. He drives me crazy. They're proud while they're saying it. Am I telling the truth? Show mm -hmm. of hands, black people in the room. I'm not making this up. I'm not even making it up. So, but we all know the secret. So the white response to that is, they're so negative. Mm -hmm. No wonder. They're just, they're just so negative, right? So what I do understand about that is having grown up with that. And, and you know, I actually trace the etiology of that behavior. How did I do it? Two ways. One, I interviewed elders and I read slave narratives. And that's how I found out where it began. Because I've been to seven countries in Africa. It's not an African thing. Mm -hmm. So when I went back and I, and I looked at it, I looked at through the slave narratives in my interviews uh, with, with elders, now we're going to roll the same scene back 300 years. You have a black mother, and she is enslaved, and so also are her children. White slave owner, male or female, they say she's working in the fields or in the big house. Doesn't matter. It wasn't uncommon for children to be playing nearby. White slave owner walks by and says to her, that's your boy there? That's your boy? That boy sure is coming along. Sure is coming along. And what is she going to say? No, no, no. Mm -hmm. No, sir. He's stupid. He, mm -hmm. he, he's shiftless. He can't work because I don't want you to sell him. Mm-hmm. If it's my daughter, I don't want you to breed her. So I denigrate them to protect them. That is called appropriate adaptation when living in a hostile environment. Guess what? We never unlearned it because we never got to have a conversation mm. about our injury because mm. after all, aren't you free now? Mm. What's wrong with you people? So now let's roll it back to 2018 again. And you have the black mother and the white mother. And both sons are seated on either side. And you have Trey and you have Timmy. And Trey looks at his mother and he thinks, how come you can't be proud of me? Like she's proud of her son. Because Trey hasn't learned the secret. And by the time he learns the secret, he's been injured by it. Post-traumatic slave syndrome. 
pretty straightforward. How many of those things are there? Oh, my gosh, you know, who bothered to look? Who has bothered to look? But then we, again, break my leg and you complain that I limp. And guess what? Guess what the easiest thing I do with every black man, woman, and child I meet and I tell that story to. I say when they tell you that your daughter is beautiful and your son is incredible and your husband is brilliant, say thank, thank you. you. We end it right there. That's you right. understand what I'm saying? But you can't fix what you don't understand. You can't. It's so easy to remedy once you understand. And I've all over the world, everywhere I go, it's, it's, a, it's a, a freedom because we never understood why. That, that goes to my next question, Joy, just beautifully, because you've touched so many people with your stories, with your research, and people have come up to you crying. They have. When they have woke up. You're waking people up. Can you tell us a story when somebody at one of your lectures, anything that anybody has said to you because they heard it for almost Lord. the first time? I, you know, what, what I've found happens more than anything else, because see, first of all, I think we already know it. You know, all I did was give it a name. But I can't tell you how many black people, no matter every walk of life, that'll say to me, I knew it, I knew it. Because you see, it resonates with you. It resonates in your body. You go, because you, you understand it has to be something. We all know it. That's why it resonates. And so once, once that happens, I had a woman, I was walking. Actually, I was uh, in, uh, going to the grocery store. I was in the parking lot of a grocery store. And this woman runs over to me, crying. She and her and her son. And she hugs me. It's a perfect stranger. She says, you saved my life. You saved my life. I told my son I loved him for the first time. Told my son. And you know, it's interesting if you talk to a lot of, a lot of black folks, and, and, and part of what that has to do with, um, and especially men, they'll go, yeah, no, 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 my dad, I know he loved us. He didn't, you know, he didn't say it or nothing, but you know, I know, I know he loved us, right? How attached are you gonna be to someone that may not be there for you, that they may sell away? How do you, how do you manage emotionally not becoming attached. You all know about secure attachment and healthy attachment. How attached are you going to be? How much of your heart are you going to give away? And some of those behaviors, again, we don't know why anymore, but they become trapped in there, hence epigenetics. So now, this was later on, much later than when I wrote the book. Epigenetics, not a new phenomenon. Uh, not simple either. I've been reading several books on epigenetics, and it's thick. But what they do know, um, one of the things they discovered, they were doing um, work with rats. They've been doing work with animals and plants. This stuff has been going on for a long time. But they, they were working with these rats. And this one particular rat, they were wanting to accustom the rat to develop an aversion for a smell. So essentially, they would release the smell and then shock the rat. And eventually, the rat begins to react to the smell, conditioned response, right? That's the whole point, Re without the reinforcement, without the electrical shot. So what happened was they released peppermint, shocked the rat. The rats freaked out. Eventually, the rat 
hated peppermint, would freak out every time it smelled peppermint. Then they tested the babies of that rat. And the babies were born with an aversion to peppermint, having never been exposed to peppermint. Then they tested the grandbabies of that rat. And the grandbabies of the rat were born with an aversion to peppermint, having never been exposed. Then they started to realize that trauma gets trapped in the DNA. So, however you want to look at this, this is not philosophical. This is real. Everybody who knows me knows that my work is about healing. Again, you can't heal what you don't know. But when I say to black people that I need you to heal, it's not philosophical because if you do not heal, you will inadvertently pass along to the future generation your injuries. Does that make sense? So we have to really heal. And that is really a collective effort. Do you see? It's not something that we can do individually, independent of, of each other, because we live as a collective. And this is why it's something everyone needs to know. Mm -hmm. And it's not just black folks. If you look at our Native American brothers and sisters, if you look at Aboriginal folks in Australia, if you look at Jewish people, if you look at any group of people, you're going to see that there is a need for healing. But again, we have never been able to heal because America's pathology is her denial. We're going to just deny it. I don't know what to say. <laughs> Because I'm thinking about that one right there. Intergenerational. You know, I talk to, uh, when I talk to the students about beat beatings and why we need to hold back before you try to take that child away from the family because the parent is, the, the child's complaining that they're being beat. You want to talk a, tell a story about spankings oh, and beatings? Lord. Because I think for, <laughs> for counselors to understand there's a history behind that. Very, very, uh, very real history. Um, one of the things that, actually, I was, I was in, where was I? I, I want to say that I was in Tennessee. I've been so many places. But I was actually working with psychiatrists. And the whole room was full of white coats, psychiatrists, most of them black. Uh, no, I was in New Jersey. I just remembered I was in New Jersey. And so I was talking about, uh, something that, you know, I, I basically asked black people in the audience, I said, how many people, you know, and I'm 60, so I'm, I'm also a different generation. So I asked them, how many, how many of you, you know, had a parent or a grandparent say, go get me a switch? Right, so everybody <laughs> raised their hand, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I said, how many, how many times have they had you, they, they actually collected switches and they kind of had them. And a switch, mm -hmm. for people who don't know, is a thin branch off of a tree, you pull all the leaves off of it, right? Sometimes they would take a few of them, braid them together. Sometimes they would take them, braid them together, and then soak them in water. So what, what happens is everybody in the audience, they start feeling a little, all right, hold up. <laughs> I said, what that is, is a whip. That's the cat of nine tails. I said, so you don't even have to hit a horse or an elephant to train it. But what that switch is, is a modified whip. They weren't real happy with that <laughs> when I said that. They were like, well, but Big Mama loved me. 
I turned out okay. I said, you turned out okay in spite of it, not because of it. And so what ends up happening with that is we fold in some of these behaviors. So why did you whip children? Why do children need to be whipped? Well, if you look at the history, very often, it was often black boys that were whipped most severely. And they'll say, I'm, I'm, I'm whipping you now to save your life. How I many people know about that one? Mm -hmm. I'm saving your life because if you try to bow up on a white person, that's right. they're going to take your life. So I need to beat any kind of, of resistance in you that might show up with white people because those white people take your life. So I'm going to beat you within an inch of your life so that you never stand up on Mr. Jimmy. But that's where it comes from. Right. But we've normalized it. But what we don't understand was Big Mama was broken. Mm -hmm. All we knew was that it was just Big Mama because we didn't know about post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, given what I've said, let's look at trauma, what we know about trauma. Post-traumatic stress disorder is a disorder. And that's only one form of trauma, by the way. But post-traumatic stress disorder is one form of trauma that can occur as a result of a single trauma. And that single trauma can be experienced directly or indirectly. Okay, so if I were to shoot this beautiful person sitting in front of me here, I think we could pretty much know that they're traumatized, right? There's someone seated next to them. They traumatized too because they saw me shoot them. Someone in the hall doesn't see it, hears the shot, later finds out who it is, they're traumatized. We reach out to the family of this individual, and the family that lives in Arkansas finds out they've been shot. They're traumatized. But sitting right across the way is someone else that was there. And you go to that person, you say, my goodness, were you there? Yes. Did you see them get shot? Yes. It was horrible, too. Blood everywhere. When's dinner? Hmm. Not traumatized. So everybody's not traumatized even directly by a traumatic event. But when we talk about chattel slavery, followed by Jim Crow, followed by lynching, followed by current day crazy, <laughs> we're not talking about a single trauma. Hmm. We're talking about generations of hmm. trauma mm -hmm. that never got addressed, ever. So here's what happens. We can ill afford to swallow whole what we call cultural because there's poison in the cookies. What we're folding in is not just wonderful, great cultural customs and norms. We're, we're also folding in adaptation to trauma. So we don't know that, you know, you, you, I can't tell you, everybody, every family I know, you know, you have the reunion, they go, now you know Uncle Willie. We don't quite know what's wrong with him, but you know, he's, he does stuff and just, you know, don't mention these, th these things and this, just try to stay away from him because he, he coming too, but you know, he's not right. And we don't know how or why. And that went on for generations. The other thing is people disappeared. How many people have people in the family mm -hmm. that go, yeah, he just left. We never heard from him. Hmm. You know, people just go. So there's a lot of issues around issues of abandonment, there are a lot of issues around secure attachment, and there are a lot of issues around just trying to understand how to navigate the terrain because no one ever healed. And so there's poison in the cookies. My work is about teasing out the poison from the cookies. Let's hold on to what's cultural and positive, yes. enriching, 
and, you know, enhancing. And let's get rid of those things that are harming us. But if, if no one ever told you, you never knew. We never understood someone had post-traumatic stress disorder or bipolar disorder or anything else. We didn't, we didn't get to know that. But still we rise. Mm. Still mm. we rise. But how much better would we be if we knew? Mm. How much stronger would we be if we healed? Mm -hmm. How much um, brighter would be the future for our children and our grandchildren if we eradicated and stopped the injury the biggest issue 2018 is I'm trying to heal my leg, but you're still breaking it. It's hard to heal when, the, when we're still being assaulted. Mm -hmm. And we are on every level imaginable. We are being assaulted. And so it's difficult to heal. I don't think it's impossible because, you know, my ancestors, can you imagine being enslaved, looking at slavery for 100 years? You're 100 years in, 100 years in. And someone says, we're not going to always be slaves. You had another 200 years in front of you, and still there was joy that showed up in the morning. Still there were those who said, we won't always be slaves. It won't always be this way. Someone had hope. Someone believed, and if it weren't for them, I wouldn't be here today. So I know we can do this. But I also know we must do this collectively. This is not something, and let me be real clear about this. America is an amazing place. I've been all over the world, and I will inevitably hear someone go, well, you know, you Americans, hmm. you all have a problem with race. You just seem to have such a problem with race. You know, we don't, we don't have that problem in our country. <laughs> and I go, of course not. There ain't nobody there but you. <laughs> So, you know, America is, a, is, a, is truly a divine experiment. Yeah, we got a lot mm -hmm. of issues, but the potentiality, the reality is America, if it can happen here, it can happen everywhere else. This is a crucible. This is the only chance, I think, of a broader humanity getting it. America has to get it. And we are really struggling right now, mm -hmm. as you all know. Mm -hmm. And all of that is based on fear. Yep. It's all about fear. But we are much better together, much get better as a country, uh, better as a, as a people, as a humanity. And, and to also understand that it, it gets beyond a conversation. You know, I've, I've written models. Others have, my, my other uh, colleagues have written models, evidence-based. Mm -hmm. Let's keep that up, evidence-based. That's right. Know? Got to say that. That's right. Otherwise, it's there not you real. Go. That's right. It's you know, not real. evidence base. Can you talk about, <laughs> in the evidence, um, how important community is? Mm. So like anything else, you know, those of us that are working uh, with people, you know, there are varying levels. You have the individual, you have the family, you have the group, you have the community, you have the society, right? And what we have to also do is, you know, very often folks are like, can y'all heal and I still get to keep my stuff? Can y'all heal and do all this and I still, can I have my white privilege? Can I just, I'm not, you know, listen. Uh, I'm concerned and everything and I really, you know, I was, you know, I have a Black Lives Matter shirt. <laughs> um, but I'm just wondering, can I just keep my privilege? 
Hmm. Um, and so there, there is this kind of this, this feeling that um, folks don't want to do the work. You know, what, what is it going to mean? What, what is this going to look like? And I think that what it, what it means is that if we're talking about really healing, you know, and, and speaking truth to power and understanding that uh, a lot has to change. And the fear is that folks are going to lose their stuff because right, I still want to keep my stuff. And the bottom line is we already have too much stuff. In America, we, way, we got way too much stuff. Because if we look at where we are in terms of the world on a global stage, we're less than 5% of the world's population using anywhere from 40 to 70% of the world's resources. That can't keep happening. And guess what? The have-nots have realized what the haves have, and they've decided, well, if we can't have it, you can't either. And they're willing to take it down. And we are really there. I mean, when you get people to the point that they are now, we have to recognize that um, this process of growth and change is going to require sacrifice. And in, in my life, this is the first time that, um, you know, we're willing to, again, have the conversation. But when it comes down to it, who can own property in San Francisco? <laughs> you know, let's keep it real. You know, so people like, and we're in a church, that feels good and everything, you know, and people feel like I can sitting, get sitting on the throne. Cathartic. That's right. We're on thrones. <laughs> we're on and thrones. Stuff. We're, you know, <laughs> but when we go home, we go to our own individualized ghettos. And if we talk about community in a real sense of community, it means that we all have to show up. We have to show up. And, and, and I'm not saying that everybody gets, has to lose everything, but we got to share a little better than what we're doing here. Because inevitably, it's going to reach, it's going to end up reaching the manicured lawns. Nobody will be able to hide in America. Not anymore. We can't do it. You know, no longer, I, I was telling people that this is a, the first time in my life where being white didn't give you a pass. 2018, white people don't get a pass for being nice white people. They go, well, I'm nice. Mm -hmm. I've always been nice. I haven't done anything, and I, you know... I'm vegan, <laughs> and I, you know. So, so people are like, I'm a nice white person. I'm really nice. And that used to really fly. Mm -hmm. People didn't, I don't have to get involved in any social issues or racism. I can just be, well, nice. But see, now what's happened to white people, the first time in my life this has happened, where white people, you know, other people look at white people and go, are you one of them? Hmm. Might you be one of them? And white people are like, I don't want you to think I'm one of them. I don't really want to help, but I don't want you to think I'm one of them. So now for the first time, white people, I got to do something. But before I didn't have to do nothing, but now I have people opening the door for me two blocks away. No, I'll hold it. I just want you to know I'm not one of them. I don't want you to think I'm one of them, which is community. Right. And that, that means that we collectively have to, have to show up, whereas maybe before we thought we didn't. Because this is a firestorm that's coming whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. It's coming. Mm -hmm. What did James Baldwin say, the fire next time? Hey. All right. So your book, you're moving to another level. <laughs> you're taking it to another place. Part two. Well, actually, the book that's out now, the new one, yes. is a revised 
it's a revised. It's got a couple of hundred, maybe a hundred more pages to it. Okay. Um, and some additions. And we had to, you know, that was pre all the crazy stuff that's happened. You know, so I had to yes. update the book to reflect. That, because the issue is the book is about, the whole purpose of the book was to let people know there was something broken that needed to be healing, healed, right? So in order for that to happen, we have fresh new wounds. This was before Trayvon and Tamir. You know, this is before uh, Sandra. This was before all of the things that we see happening. That book was written before those injuries. Those are new. And they're being fueled by, again, a, a contemporary fear that is happening. And, and I, I can't address that fear here, but it's something we need to get, uh, get to understand because it is making us very vulnerable as a country. Because if you don't, you, you, whatever, whoever the people are here, there are other folks watching this that don't like America. And we're creating the perfect storm. Are you following me? Mm. We're, we're creating the perfect storm to destroy the country. We've given them exactly, they've learned what to do. And again, if you think about that on a, on a broader scale than people dropping bombs, you have to understand how you ignite fear. And what happens when you pit people against each other, right? And the most vulnerable you can be is when you're in turn involved in a fight. That's when you're most vulnerable is when your own back is turned. Do the math. And there are a whole lot of people that, that are hoping and wishing that America crumbles. And we're giving it to them. So this is bigger than, you know, any kind of, you know, feeling some kind of way about it or, you know, I'm black, you're white or, you know, or, or Mexican or it's, it's much bigger than that. Because what could potentially happen is much, much worse than anything we've seen ever, ever. So as we take a look at this and we often intellectualize these things or they become a discussion. Mm -hmm. We need to understand, I, I mean, I I'm telling everybody, I hope you have a plan B. Hmm. Hope you have a plan B. Because if we don't pay attention to what's going on, we're going to really pay for this. But imagine now, if you look at everybody in this room, and this is, a, this is what uh, Martin Luther King was able to do, by the way. You know, and I, everybody, you know, I love Malcolm and I love Martin. They both did very different things, but for the same reason. And one of the things that you cannot stop is if you have people united, when you are unable to divide them, mm -hmm. there is a power that comes with that that is unfathomable. And we have to be able to unite. Unite. If, if we don't, if we do not figure this out in this country, if we don't learn how to unite, it will be our own demise mm -hmm. that we will suffer. Mm. It will be our own. And it's within our capacity. So here's a question. Are we going to come to this realization based on collective will? Or are we going to come to this as a result of unimaginable horror? That's what's before us. That's what this begins, just a tip of the iceberg. That's what I began to unravel, is that what we can potentially do if we can heal because again, let's understand that if 300 years of trauma injured black people, what do you think that did to white people? Understand everybody's injured here. It looks a little different. It shows up with white supremacy. 
a pathological belief in some sort of genetic genetic superiority when you know anything that you understand about science you understand that we're 99.99% the same so any any anything that we're looking at here has to take into consideration the reality the truth the flat-footed truth and that is that we're one. We're one humanity. And if we don't, you know, and again, I don't want to sing kumbaya, don't get me wrong. But I think that, um, that the, the mythology around this is that a good round of we are the world and, you know, it holding hands is going to do it. Um, this requires social justice. This is not going to happen because we all just talk nice and, you know, felt a cathartic moment. There has to be change. And so post-traumatic Healing cannot occur without, without social justice. It can't. Again, you can't keep injuring folks. You can't keep the disparities going on. And understand what you, we can't keep an, an unfair advantage. It can't keep happening. It's a matter of not, not, not if, but when. This has, you know, it has to somehow come to it. But you know, like I said, there's going to be folks that, like I said, they're going to they they have to die. There's some folks got to die, you know. They're folks that are never going to get this. You're going to go back. Some of you, I try to tell you, don't, don't try it at home. When you go back to try to tell people this, let me just say, and I'm not talking about in the classroom. Go to the dinner table with Uncle Frank. Yeah, go, go try to tell them. See, that's what, you have white people that want to be a participant. They go, but could someone else talk to my family? Because I don't want to talk to them. <laughs> I, can't, I just, I, I want to be with you all because I don't want because, <laughs> right, that's the hard part. Mm -hmm. That really is the hard part, it is, is to be able to, to, to play this out and to understand what it looks like on a daily basis and what justice and fairness look like. Because we've not lived just and fair. We just haven't. It felt like, well, normal to other folks, but it's not normal. It's unhealthy and it's unjust. We have data, evidence-based data that it's, you know, shares, you know, why it is, why things are the way they are. But the people who don't know the people who aren't in this room, the people who are looking around wondering why, how come? They don't understand what's going on. And they blame themselves. They say, what, I must, I must not be working hard. I'm telling black people, we shouldn't have to work at all. <laughs> we worked for free for 339 years. For free, okay. Ask, ask any person of color, not just black people, any person of color in this room what their parents told them how much harder they had to work than white people. How much harder? Say it. Tell me, how much harder did your parents say you had to work? Mm -hmm. That's twice, twice as hard. Twice as hard. We all were told the same thing. You can't be, you got to get way above that curb to be able to be okay. We were all told that. So we're already hard working. You know, but again, there's some mythology. We built the country, literally. Built it. And, you know, we're told we were lazy and all the things that, you know. But there's some psychology to that because once you believe it, you know, one of the things that Randall Robinson said to me, and I actually, he, I quote him in the book. He says, the worst thing you can do to a people is to rob them of the memory of themselves. You can't possibly know where you're going if you don't know where you came from. So it's about setting those things straight. And we can do that. We can do that everywhere we are. We can start speaking the truth. 
and telling the truth. And I'm not saying you crush people. I'm not saying that, you know, you beat people up. And there's some people, like I said, they're never going to get it. You know, Miss Ann might have to just die off. You know, I used to tell people, um, I would often have in therapy, I would have, uh, I had some, some a white family that came to me because their son was a skinhead in Portland. And they don't understand how it happened. They go, we didn't raise him that way. We don't know what happened to that boy. We did not raise him to be, we did not allow this. And no, literally, we're trying to unpack it. And they're telling the truth. They didn't raise him that way. I said, but where did he go every summer? Did he go visit Nana and Papa? Hmm. I said, now let me explain something. Like anything else, black parents have learned that we have to, every black person in here has uh, some sort of a way of dealing with police officers when you're stopped. How many black people? My whole family, we have a thing. When you get stopped by police, there's a protocol. The whole family is involved. Cell phones are on. You know, everybody, people are, look, I'm being stopped <laughs> by the police, right? You, you start learning that your survival may depend upon how you engage that. So I, used to t I, told, I told this family, I said, no, I absolutely believe that it wasn't you. But for his entire life, you sent him back to Idaho to spend time with your parents who were breastfed on racism. So now, what do you think they were saying to him? Now, I'm not saying that you don't get to visit Nana. Uh, you don't get to visit them, but here's what you do. Okay, you're going to go visit Nana. Yes. Now, let me say something about Nana. Nana believes some things, and your papa, he believes some things that we don't believe. They're going to probably say these kind of things to you. You got to go through the whole, because these are your parents, you know it. You send them, and then you hope they're not going to be who they are. So you say, now don't, you're not going to correct Nana. You're not going to talk back, and it, Rest assured, they're going to come back. Yep, that's what she said. That's what they told me. You buttress them. You strengthen them. You tell them. You warn them. Because generation after generation, it's got to be coming from somewhere. And while we can't, like I said, you know, grandpa might have to just die off because we're never going to get it. But you don't get to poison the children. And that's where we've got to stand up and understand that there's a line you have to, to draw. And I have a line that I draw. You, you, not my, my kids and my grandkids. I go, I was, we were just talking about it. I actually volunteer at my grandkids' schools. I train their teachers and everyone else. Honestly, because I'm not going to send them into a place where I know, I already have the data. I'm not going to send them in and go, I hope they're not going to harm them. Mm. Who does that? Who does that? I'm a hope that we, are, we have the data. Yale Child Study just did a thing on teacher bias. They have bias when they're like three. They did research where they looked at the trajectory of the gaze of the teachers to determine. They told them, look at this classroom. Tell me where you see potential problems. Here's a secret. There were no problems. So they didn't, they just watched their eyes. And they all looked at the black boy or other children of color immediately. Now, they're what they said, we just want you to tell us if you see a potential problem. So they already saw a problem that wasn't there. So now I'm going to send my grandkids in there and just hope. No, I'm not. I'm going to I'm going to send my grandkids in there. and I'm going to say, hello, Miss Wilson. I was wondering, what are you going to do to 
to somehow mitigate the potential harm that could happen to these children of color as a result of bias. Well, I don't understand what you're saying. I'm not a racist. Here's the data. <laughs> so, it's not personal. It's not personal now. I just, I need to know what you're gonna do because of your not being aware that you could harm it. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Every black parent, Latino parent, let's, let's just do a math. Number one, number one, and it, it doesn't matter. We don't listen to the children. So when a black child, a Latino child comes home from school, doesn't matter what grade, <laughs> this is all the way up into college. They go, I notice you, you're getting a D. Why, why, why are you getting a D in this class? It's because my teacher doesn't. Mm -hmm. Now listen to him, mm -hmm. real or perceived, I don't think you like me. Mm -hmm. And I need you to like me. And the teachers don't like them. And they've been saying it for generations mm -hmm. and we just send them in there mm -hmm. and hope. Mm -hmm. No, this is where we have to take action. And you don't have to be black to take action. We have the data. I have to tell the teacher, I understand that you don't believe there's bias, but based on the research, you don't believe you have it. <laughs> so, it's, I, and again, it's about him. This song isn't about you. Mm -hmm. That's our responsibility. That's what healing looks like. It's, it's showing up. Right. You know, I'm tired. I don't feel like going to mm -hmm. cross the country to an elementary school. <laughs> you know, but I'm going to do it. That's right. Because that's what I have to do. You know, and not just to protect mine, to protect all of those that don't even know how to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. Got to do it. Got to show up. I don't even know where we are anymore. That's right. Go on. <laughs> I'm a little passionate. I love it. Yeah, just a little passionate. <laughs> What advice would you give to um, our aspiring counselors who are working in communities that are broken, that have a lot of strength, have a lot of love? You know, how do we walk into a community as counselors and healers uh, today in 2018? Well, know thyself, one. Mm -hmm. um, really, I think that there are people that know how to be with people. Now, I, I trained, I taught social workers, MSW students, who got straight A's on papers. They got, they aced every exam and should never be in a room with a warm body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The problem is our institutions that are educating people. I used to be, I was the person on the faculty. I mean, people, they hated me, you know, because I'd have to stop at faculty meetings and I'm going, okay, so there has to, we're mental health people. Okay, this is what we're about, mental health. I said, there has to be more than just grades to suggest that you're competent to deal with folks, right? Because you all know that serial killers can do good on tests. You know what I'm saying? So, so what are we doing? Aren't we going to use another lens through which to look at this? Because I am concerned about the most vulnerable people. 
and you now sending someone certifiable in there with them because they have letters behind their name. And inevitably, they end up in communities of color. They end up in, with vulnerable populations, and they run it. And they're crazy. And they injure our people, and they re-injure people, and they go, got all the letters, all the power, all the backing. So when people want to go into a community and you want to help, I have a really good friend called me today. His brother is uh, diagnosed with cancer. We've known each other for, uh, gosh, 30 years. Jay Ira Klusky. Jay is Jewish. He's got a degree from UCLA Cognitive Psychology. Dr. Jay. Jay Klusky has been working in the black community for over 20 years, as long as I have. For years, Jay would come in the room. Communities, of, he would just sit in the back. He didn't raise his hand. He didn't try to say anything. Sometimes you'd see Jay at the end, emptying the trash, putting the chairs back. And he did that for years. He did it so long that, you know, I would go places because he was learning. He was learning. After a while, the black people would go, where's that albino brother that's always with you? <laughs> I go, what albino brother? You know, the, the bald-headed guy with the goatee. I said, Jay, Jay's not an albino, he ain't black. I, it happened so frequently. Black people just made him black. They just, they just made him black. Jay started, he's, so many black people say, you got some black in you. Mm. He, he actually went back and said, mom, is there something you need to tell me about? I mean, he really, and Jay was able to show up in the community. Jay made mistakes put his foot in his mouth any number of times I had to help him un disentangle himself. But he was sincere, he was committed, and he, he learned from the people that he was trying to help. The problem is so many people go in thinking they can help or wanting to help, but you haven't asked the people. You haven't asked the user what they want. And that's the problem with all the people with the letters is they think that that equips them to be in, in rooms with people they know nothing about. And I'm saying, with black, case in point, I had social workers, because social workers like to pathologize, right? I would give them scenarios, and there would be no pathology, and they would find it every single time. <laughs> Something we got to medicate. We got to medicate somebody, okay? So what I asked them, I did this little thing. They got mad at me. I, I was always in trouble. But I, I, I had a little, the little board, and I said, I'm going to ask you, you know, with all your brilliant expertise, I'm going to give you an example of a population. I want you to tell me what would you do? Uh, and what would you think about immediately? And I say, there's a huge influx of Hmong people. What do you want to consider? Hands went up. Um, we want to talk about language. Uh, we want to talk about um, gender, issues of gender, religion. We want to, you know, and I, I'd have them write it all down. And I went through different groups. Romanian, you know, yeah, well, we got to definitely look, you know, all, they had, a, and I said, African-Americans. There'll be, I said, so let me try to understand this. You would consider thinking a little bit ahead with all those groups, but you think you don't need to learn anything to come into my community. Well, we, we speak English, so either we don't have a culture or we don't have one worthy of your concern. And they got mad at me. You're, you're calling us racist. I'm not calling you racist. I'm just telling you that if you're getting ready to walk in my community, you need to have more than what you're showing up with. And you have just told me 
with the frozen pen that you don't think there's anything you need to know. That's the problem. Why do, you, why do people think that? What is it you think about us? And that suggests you really shouldn't be there. Really, right? So part of my job as a, as a professor was to really, I, I tried to weed out people. I tried to, to, to frighten them <laughs> away from my community, honestly. Joy, and I told them. I'm going to stop you right there. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. Joy. I, I have to. I, it's the truth. Okay, say, say the last word. We're going to open it up to the audience. No, I am. But last thing I wanted to say, <laughs> I got to tell you this. I said, I said, now by the end of this, you know, and I had was a year. I had them in generalist practice, a full year. I said, now after this year, I don't care what your grades are. If I think you can cause harm hmm. to these vulnerable communities, I will warn them and this faculty. Wow. And the community. No. And I, I meant that. And I did. Just saying. Okay. Okay. I'm okay. Done. No, no, I'm done. no. You needed to say that. <laughs> no, you needed to say that yeah. because we're too afraid to call it out. Because schools can get sued these days if you throw some people out. So the fear is we got to be nice. And we got to keep the lights on. And at the same, got to keep the lights on. And then you're going to let people out in the world to do some harm. Did everybody hear the last statement? Yes. Very powerful. Thank you. Thank you, Joy. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DeMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.